Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the DLC Drop Podcast. Today it's my pleasure to welcome Terrence Burke. He is the Senior VP of Kidsay, which, which is a youth research company. They provide great data on what kids are doing in their play and their learning, and they do it in such a way that it benefits schools and their education. He's going to talk a lot about how they do that and also the trends that he's learned over 20 years of youth research. Let's talk to Terrence. Drop in the untold stories of industry leaders, influencers, and insights on future innovation. I'm John Davidson, and this is the DLC Drop Podcast. All right, Terrence, thank you so much for joining me today on this episode of the DLC Drop Podcast. Uh, you and I have known each other, I want to say, maybe about a year now. I feel like we probably connected maybe mid-COVID, mid-pandemic. Yeah, mid-pandemic. <laughs> and Some, uh, Something good came out of that. <laughs> that's right. I, I try to look at everything in life as a silver lining, and I would, I would definitely describe our relationship as one of those silver linings. And so to give a little bit of background for the audience, I got in touch with Kids Say, which is an amazing youth research company. I've learned so much from what you guys have done. And a lot of what I do in my daily work is I'm connecting folks who are in the esports space along with folks who are, I call them complementary experts. People have a deep expertise that is greatly needed by the esports industry, but in the industry, we don't really have that capability or don't have that expertise. And as I learned what you guys do, how you do it, the data that you've procured, I, I just really see such a great opportunity for others in the industry to learn from you. So I'm so excited to have you on the podcast and really share, but why don't you set up for the audience first, in your words, who are you and what do you do? Yeah, so I'm Terrence Burke, as, as you introduced, I'm Senior VP of Research at Kidsay, and I'm somebody who comes from you know a passion of kids. You know. At Kids Say, our founder, Bob Reynolds, started as a school fundraiser. And so his model of kind of finding out information about what's happening in kids' lives comes from the genesis of it is his desire to help schools, you know, do the things that the local school budget taxes don't cover, right? Uh, mm. Field trips and music instruments and uh, scholarships and more library book books. And so he developed a, a network of schools throughout America where, you know, principals get permission from parents and, and say, hey, instead of having your kid go out there and sell wrapping paper or chocolates, I want to ask them about their lives, right? They're going to answer some questions about what they'd like to do on the weekend and what's their favorite thing to do for friends and given a screen, what do they most often do on it? And we as a school will get some some money for that that we'll be able to enhance the educational uh, experience. And so it's really that model that is it's you know it's kind of a side benefit of what what I do that really kind of keeps me jazzed about the experience because it really has you know a real world impact. It does, and and that was one of the reasons. Or you know when I first learned about you guys, I got to know you guys, and you're great people. First of all, it's all about. Uh, who you do it with even more than than what you do. But I, I saw some of your decks. I saw some of your reports. I was like, wow, there's a lot I'm learning from this. But the other part of it is the kids piece of it, right? There's always a lot of questions when it comes around 
how is data or research uh, coming from children? And, and not just that, obviously, you guys are doing it legally, <laughs> <laughs> but the fact that you are doing it in such a way that it is safe and it's also beneficial for the kids and the people who help educate them uh, really made me want to embrace you guys even more. Yeah, thank you. You know, uh, it's really been at the heart of, of what we've done. You know, when they started with COPA law, they actually, you know, a legislator from um, California who, who uh, put that bill before the Congress uh, originally gave Bob Reynolds a call and said, we've heard you guys are in schools and getting research from kids that really hard to find stuff because of all the regulations. Yeah. And so they actually use some of our kind of screeners and our permissions as a, a model to say, this is the kind of way we should do it, right? It's got to be totally transparent. Yeah. Parents have got to be in, involved in this. It's got to be, you know, we don't do any promotions. We don't do any selling. We don't, we are trying to find out about the lives of kids. Hmm. And so, you know, with that and the imprimatur of it being a school, and principal to principal network saying, hey, guys, you know, because we're not going to go to the same kids again. Right. We're, we don't. Another advantage is we don't have professional survey takers. Right. Research firms that looking for kids are so hard to find that if they've got a kid who oh, this kid answers questions, you know, they're on their 58th survey that they've taken over the last five years or whatever. You know, right. we're going to to schools and we know it's kids on the other end. We, we know it's not mom filling out because, oh, junior said he's going to do this survey. And, you know, that benefit of knowing that it's kids and the quality. Right. We you professional researchers when they um, when they're getting qualitative stuff from kids, you know, they'll the, the research firms who do the recruiting will ask, well, is your is your son loquacious? Is he one of the leaders of his group? And, you know, sure. thankfully moms and dads are biased and love their kids more generally, but yeah. have no real clue. When we, you know, using our school network, we talk to principals and teachers who tell us, hey, if you want a kid who's the cutting edge that the other kids look to, to say, they're the first one to be on what's, what's the new game or what's the new sneaker or whatever it is, that qualitative difference in the recruiting and the fact that, in pre-COVID times, but still today, we're, we're in schools almost every day. We were conducting research on their turf, right? So they were real comfortable. You know, they didn't get into the research facility and start swinging the chairs and looking around and trying to figure out. And they didn't have the the alpha games, the alpha, the alpha chimp, right? Of, oh, if I say something, this kid I don't know across the way, are they gonna think I'm a, I'm a jerk or how is their reaction gonna be? Because we're in a school environment, working with kids where all those games have been played out already, everyone is who they are, it is known, and the ethos of the environment is everyone's voice counts, right? They've been trained in that in the school to say, no, every voice counts. And so the quality of the qualitative research in our, the school environment is just another reason why, you know, my time at KidSay has been so uh, enriching. That's incredible. So you're procuring this data in a in a great way, a way that is uh, generating high quality data. It's good for kids. It's good for schools. So what are some of the industries that you're then working in? What are some of those brands who are clients who are coming to you and saying, hey, you know, you really know what we want to find out so that we can best uh, serve, serve our target market? 
So there are two industries that really we have the major kid players, right? It's entertainment and content, yep. right? The major, and, and I, you know, I know that some of them have said we can use their name, but I'm always reluctant to kind of say that, but the ones who've, who said, yes, it's not a problem. Nickelodeon and Disney have been, you know, clients of ours for decades. In the in the toy and gaming world, Hasbro and Mattel and Spin Master are, have been our clients. We are kind of a conduit to them, to kids all the time. So in the toy space and in the in the entertainment, the content space, those have been our main our main drivers of our client. We've had food, we've had apparel, right? Any any really anyone who who says I need to know kids to know my business, sure. right? Has been somebody who can come to us and say, "Wow, right? Uh, these guys really help ground us in who who kids are." I mean, I like to tell companies, I'm never going to know their business as well as they know their business. Sure. But if they need to know kids, they got to be grounded in their behaviors, their attitudes, the things that are influencing them. And, and if you are dipped in the ambient water of childhood, right, of what's happening with kids, you're going to walk back to your desk drenched in that knowledge it might lead to a direct line from a to b to c because oh we've got this data from kids sure. but there's this soft part of it that is oh i know you know what kids are doing on their free time i know what they aspire to be i know uh their favorite color i know who's the influencer that they're most likely to go to that stuff is going to permeate my understanding of my marketing my product development all of that I mean, we work with a shoe client. One of my favorite kind of insider stories was, you know, one of the product development line and marketing team, when they got together, they would start in the, in the days of, of um, only analog reports, right? Before everything was um, digitized in our dashboard, et cetera. Yeah. They would literally take the pages from the report and hang it around the room. And before the meeting started, the boss lady would said, you guys need to go around and take 10 minutes and refresh yourself with who we're designing for, who we're creating products for, know who they are, hmm. and then we'll start our meeting. And that was such a perfect um, kind of benefit that those who really get it, um, who will really understand that we're helping deliver them kids so that they can do their thing better, they can provide the kind of things that get kids excited, get kids juice, that help kids on their journey right through life because play and content right are not just things to be consumed by kids correct they're things that kids use to understand themselves to understand their world to to develop um who they are to play at new roles new aspects of themselves it's a key part of their development and you know i'm you know really proud that that's the kind of work that we we do that's incredible i get i can see a a major challenge or perhaps a major gap be between product managers or product developers and the, when the target market is children, right? I think in my world, which is esports, marketing, sports, and entertainment, we're seeing this where you have uh, marketing executives who have marketed to themselves essentially for the last right. 20, 30 years, and they know what they're doing, they know what works, etc. until Gen Z shows up 
And this is a group that's more skeptical than older generations. They're consuming content in very different ways than older generations. And so all of a sudden you've gone from, whoa, I knew what I was doing for 20, 30 years, and now the whole game has changed. I would think that would be an even greater challenge when it's not just a different generation, but it's a couple generations below. Is that something that you experience with your clients and what they come to you for? Yes, uh, all the time, John, and particularly at the the upper levels of management of people who've earned their 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 way up the ladder. Yeah. There might be two generations removed from from those kids, but there's another aspect to it that everyone falls falls into the trap of. If we're the butterfly, kids are the caterpillar, right? They are a, an earlier stage of us, but they are so different. Yes. That butterfly really cannot put themselves into the experience of a caterpillar. Our brains have literally developed uh, new connections, new neural pathways that we don't know what it's like to be an eighth grader or an eight-year-old, right? Yeah. We have a concept of it, but the brain processes, right? The kind of development of the neural networks have changed so dramatically that it's it's a really a, a reflective speculation of what an eight-year-old is. An eight-year-old is processing the world at a different level. Now, kids are always going to be kids, right? Kids have always been kids from the from the the birth of humanity. Right. What what changes is what you hit on, the the cultural prism that they express that kidness through, right? And so the double challenge, you know, for the executives who make the the decisions in the direction of the company is recognizing that I need to know the the current cultural prism. And I need to be humble enough to say, even though I was an eight-year-old, I don't know what an, how an eight-year-old works because literally my brain is different, right? I have to right. think about the developmental, the cognitive uh, differences, the just the the ability to move and move gross and fine motor skills, right? We think little kids have little fingers. They should use a, a cell phone easier than they would a tablet because, oh, they, they have little fingers but they don't have the dexterity to do that. It's why a five, six and seven year old needs a tablet and can't really game on a phone so well that the phone has to be set up for them, but on a tablet they can navigate. Even though you would think intuitively, smaller hands, smaller um, area, that should be fine. It actually makes it worse. And that's really just knowing about, you know, the biological aspect of kid that really has an impact particularly in the in the kind of gaming industry and the use of screens and manipulation of the variables. A five-year-old needs three choices, right? Because I I my brain can work that. Hmm. It's why like it's why like game cards become a big thing, collecting cards or collecting Barbies or collecting whatever it is at about nine years old. Before that, it's accumulation because their brain doesn't un, you know, get the variables, the intricacies of what makes it different, what makes it valuable. It's just, I've got more because that's how they process the world. At nine years old, they can rearrange the collections. They can reorganize what they're doing. And I know that's gotta have a huge impact in the gaming world because of the screen levels and where you can get to and the things that you can buy. And, a six and seven year old can't process all that information. It would be overwhelming for them. They need simpler, direct, fewer choices, and that works better for them. Whereas when they get into older, that's when you can play with the nuances. 
That's super interesting. I'm I'm beginning to understand in real time here why my six year old son wants <laughs> more dinosaurs when right. he has so many. Let me ask you this. This this might be completely off topic, but what is it about dinosaurs? win boys that are like five or six years old because i first of all my son knows more about dinosaurs than i ever would have known it's myself amazing. it's incredible right. in fact I'll, I'll tell you this quick story we're at target so whenever we go uh, grocery shopping at target we'll go to the toy aisle first we'll kind of get that out of the system you know go through the the, the right. aisle we're not buying anything we're just we're just window shopping right so right right we'll go through all the the aisles and you know, he'll kind of play with each uh, dinosaur toy. Uh, not too much so it doesn't ruin the box, of course. You know, but <laughs> kind of, oh, look how this one moves. And we'll right, keep it right. in mind for birthday or Christmas coming up. And uh, we're going through, and this was a couple of years ago. So he's about four years old. He's a bright kid. He's going through and he's like, oh, look, it's a Parasaurolophus. And I'm, I, was, <laughs> I was thinking like, okay, that's a funny name that he made up, right? And then I, I read the title on the, you know, on the box, para Sora Loft. I'm like, oh, you gotta be kidding me! I'm like, hey Johnny, check the what? Do you, what's this one called? You know, just kind of testing him. Oh, that's a Pachycephalosaurus. I'm like, and you know, and I'm just then you know we got yeah. into it. You know, we got you know, 10, 20 different dinos going down. But it just cracks me up. This kid is more into dinosaurs than anything I've ever seen in my life. I'm just very curious <laughs> on a personal level. Is there anything about that age? boys specifically that dinosaurs just pop with them yeah very much so so you know and and this is a really ties into the larger conversation that we as a society have had about um kind of reframing our understanding of gender right um the understanding of gender as as a spectrum that people can land on at any place right and and this is one of the things that's really interesting about both gen z and and gen alpha coming up behind them is for them, that that intuitive that's an intuitive sense, right? They've gotten the message and they look at each other in general as, oh yeah, you do you, wherever you are in that journey. It's much, much different than certainly my generation, uh, generations before me and after me, right, in their way. But there are, you know, the reasons that there are those two uh, diametrically, I wouldn't say diametrically opposed, but those those polar kind of, attractors with dinosaurs and superheroes and trucks right you like mm -hmm. so huh what is why has that been something that that has gone through basically time to say that's a thing that boys in general find themselves gravitating to right and it's about and you know because scientists have argued it um, and sociologists and psychologists have argued it um, we could argue it all day about is it is it nature or nurture, right? Is it biological or is it environmental? And, you know, the, the smart folks sit back and say, well, it's really both. And sometimes it's hard to see which way it, it gets manifested, but it's both. And so in general, the expression for a young boy to say, I feel this thing about exerting myself on outside of me particularly in a way of of a powerful device, right? A truck, a superhero, a dinosaur are monster iterations of this idea of, oh, I bestride the world in a way, right? That is 
big and large and wherever. And and so, you know, we see it time after time, right? We see it with boys. We see uh, gir- girls, again, a, a vast generalization here. Sure. They will drift towards the, the, the princess mode, right? They, you know, Disney has made an empire on recognizing that that's the way it is, right? And again, it's wide open, right? The, the change that I have loved and I have seen is that instead of those trucks and dinosaurs and superheroes being, no, those are for boys, the recognition is, uh, no, those are for kids. And whoever wants to go there, you know, go and play and have fun and, and judgment less and wherever. And so it's opened up the possibility for the girls to play with trucks without, you know, any kind of judgment and the boys to play with, with princesses or Barbies. And, and the society has starting to come to say, Hey, you know what? Everyone's on their journey. You know, we still, we still struggle. I think more so with, you know, when I first started in this field, it was girls embracing what were considered boy qualities was seen as an addition to Mm. like, so I'm still girl, but my desire to compete in sports and to and and to my ambition to be successful or to build like it was like well legos aren't a, a girl thing like what right the sure. the the addition of those qualities was seen as a positive right a, a growth thing where there was real fear of oh if a boy embraces community or gentleness that that was seen as a negative thing and it's something our society is still working out but um you know i've seen tremendous growth and the place i've seen it most is in kids in school Hmm. it is so amazing to me to see the changes wrought by um these two generations i mean i i'm generally an optimistic person but i'm really optimistic about the the generations to come because i think they're both their desire to make the world a better place and their feeling of, oh, I have a responsibility in that are really strong. And I, I think um, as far as stewards are concerned, I think we're in good hands. There'll be challenges like every generation will face challenges and overcoming hurdles that are, you know, that technologies giveth and taketh, right? Is gonna be a challenge for this generation, but I'm really optimistic. Me too. All, all I know is just about every moment I have with my son, he's like, what dinosaur are you? And let's fight. So right. <laughs> yeah. that's a lot of fun. I'd love to get into, you know, you talked a little bit about technology there. And, you know, you've been procuring research from kids for about 21 years, I believe. And so yeah. the amount of technology that has changed in that time, boy, I'm sure that has just really changed kids' behaviors, how they how they manifest those behaviors, how they're influenced, how they discover things. Why don't you take me through a little bit about the changes in trends over the years, according to technology? So it's it's really funny because I still think on this meeting, I was was at Hamburger University. Um, I was asked to come in and help kind of ground McDonald's in um, Happy Meal age kids, like who they were, what, you know, kind of some of the things we're talking about now. What are the things that are kids that age, what do they aspire to? You know, their their Hot Wheel, Barbie, uh, Happy Meal toy thing, which so much speaks to exactly what we just talked about, right? That idea. And so they had asked me to come in and talk to them. And it was right around the time where digital photography had started to get in the layman's hands. Right, a uh, a 1.8 megapixel camera, digital camera was like oh, $555 or whatever. But you know the early adapters had one, and 
somebody in the I used to sell the cell phones. I remember that one megapixel yeah. camera <laughs> on the cell phone that yeah. I had in my cell phone store. And boy, I was trying to hawk that thing. I think it was about $400 <laughs> before inflation. <laughs> so, yeah. Somebody in the audience said, do you think kids are ever going to have these things? And I said, yeah, of course they will. And and I heard like a groan. No way. I was doing. And I said, look at the, you know, the history of, of technology. Things get smaller. They get more portable. They get more affordable. And so, you know, a couple of years later, when the 4.1 megapixel camera came down and this 1.8 was now obsolete, well, what did you do? And the easy win was to hand it down to your kid. You had no film costs or anything. They could have fun. They could play. Right. So we first started seeing it in kids say with digital cameras. Right. That's when I was in the field. I mean, I could go back in history and and tell you about the boombox and the Walkman. And when I was a kid the stereo was a big piece of furniture in my living room, right? To see the, ch- the changes, right? Sure. But um, we started seeing the kids first with digital cameras. Mm. Then we started to see it with the iPod and then the cell phone. How do you be, oh, my contract is up. I've got this phone and I can add a line for, at the time, I think it was $5 a month. They were saying to add a, a new line if you upgrade a phone. I could give my, my 11-year-old daughter a phone and be a hero for five dollars a week or five dollars a month and and get all the benefits of you know contact with her and all that other thing and and she would be like out of the moon i'm gonna do it so we have seen right from the from the camera to the phone to the tablet uh a passing down of technology and the even to now like we we do kids five to seven directly interview them one-on-one 350 400 kids twice a year the the larger groups the eight to 15 year olds we're doing a couple thousand quarterly but we just implemented a report that's coming out with um, moms and dads who have a two to four year old and an older kid because we're looking to try to find the differences between so is there an age break where the rules are different your engagement um, is different because we know it is in upper grades. We know that after about the um, age of nine, parents have said, I recognize my kid's going to be able to get any of this information and, and manipulate around whatever controls I put in there. If they can't do it here in my house, they're going to get to do it at friend's house or they're going to get to do it somewhere. I have to instill the values I want. Mm-hmm. I have to keep open lines of communication in there and hope they can navigate it. Right. And so this notion of you know this passing down of technology has been a, a real interesting thing for us because we're seeing now in the five to seven year olds what we saw with the eight to eleven year olds with the tweens five six years ago, and what we saw with the the tweens we saw with the teens five to six or or actually maybe even two to three years ago we see the sweep of what happens just just now. You know, a, a few years back, I think it was five years in, in looking back at, at some of our historical data, five years ago of the top 10 favorite apps of five to seven-year-olds, there was one that was not a game. It was YouTube. That was the only one. The other nine top 10 were all games, right? Candy Crush Saga and Subway Surfer or whatever. You look at the list now and you're talking about one content uh, provider in, in YouTube, really. And then you're talking two, only two games. you got Roblox right? As one of them. And you've got, uh, hmm, I'm trying to think of the other one at the top, Minecraft. but the, right. The shift for kids, even at that young age to go to saying that 
I'm going to social media, I'm going to TikTok, right? Or I'm going to Snapchat to get things that I like the most. It's not that they're not gaming still on those up, they still are, but it's the one that is like their favorite, their go-to one, their raison d'etre for getting on the, on the phone is connection to fun content and connection to friends. And that's a major, a major shift that we have seen. Um, I was kind of surprised. I, I expected just like those developmental levels that prevent a kid from being able to manipulate a cell phone at the age of five where they can at the age of eight, right? Quite adeptly. I expected to see that there would be a wall where the social kind of the social media would not get below like the age of eight. Sure. And I've been surprised that it has, right? The penetration for them um, regarding those those social media and kids responding to that and finding the kind of fun and content that they want on it has been really illuminating for me. That's really interesting. Um, can you talk a little bit about, because there's pros and cons to everything, right? And right. so I'm sure what some of your uh, realizing in your research is essentially, hey, these are positive things. These are how people, young people are uh, engaging in content, they're engaging in brands, right. so they're finding their friends. There's just, there's drawbacks to everything. I, I think very recently we've we've seen a lot of drawbacks in the news with social media, and that's right. typically around the adult age. But what are what are some of the pros and cons that you see with technology that we should have an eye out for? Well, it's interesting. I was in a high school in suburban New York this week having a discussion with kids from uh, a group of 14 and 15 year olds and then a group of 16 to 17 year olds just based on this conversation, right? Leading in with, so these are the, you know, the revelations that came through this week on, on particularly we were focusing on Instagram and the report of the harm that it does to teen girls. And right. so those conversations about what are the benefits that you receive, right? From kids, what are the benefits you receive and what are the problems you see? And so almost universally, they talked about the toxicity of some of the of the networks, right? That the posting on on something is something that they viscerally respond to and they have a hard time avoiding it because in order to be relevant in their circle, they need to be in social. Right. And so how do they get um the, the benefits of social, the connection to friends, both both the, the friends that they also have proximity to, that they extend the playground to at home and wherever, but also to the friends that they have developed around specific interests, whether it be games, and it's, a lot of it is gaming, um, whether it be lifestyle, whether it be movies, whether it be bands, right? The, that Those larger connections they love, right? It kind of allows them to explore the, the passion that they have as they're developing a, a, a richer sense of themselves. Social media gives them that opportunity to find those little niches that, oh, this these people get me, right? Um, this is a place that they understand me and I'm valued and, and that's great. And there's the toxicity, right? And that's why, you know, over the last couple of years, we, I've been hearing from a lot of kids of why they like Discord so much because they have more control over who they get let into and invite into small little circles so that they can know and create some of these environments where they're in control and they can monitor and and, and keep the toxicity at bay, right? Keep the anonymous um, yeah. toxic folks um, out there because they recognize that that's unfortunately a part of their 
um, you know, their social engagement culture and they don't like it. Right. And so how do they get involved and stay involved in these larger kind of social media places? What we have seen is a small uh, considering of concentric circles. So it started a long time ago with um, actually it started with MySpace and Friendsta is when we first got that information. This is this large, large circle. And then once, you know, Facebook came around, it was still a large um, a circle, but not as large. Sure. And if grandma's on it, I don't know if I want to be on it. Right. Mm-hmm. And so Instagram comes along and that becomes a smaller circle of, of intimates. But then Instagram and its ethos of this perfect life. Right. I'm showing my best self. Right. right? The pressure of that. Right. You know, in talking to kids about the it's, it's almost like a an addiction um, that somebody will have. Right. To seek a drug to get the the tension that builds up before I, you know, I send off my Instagram is the tension of somebody who has an addiction and needs to get that substance in them. That, that tension that builds up until I get it. When I get it, uh, I get that release temporarily. That was what was happening with kids on Instagram, right? They would get this, oh, cause I have to on Instagram post a picture that is really flattering and points me puts me in the best light and, and presents my life as this thing. And there's tension. What are the comments going to be? And, Oh, beautiful. Is that real? Or is that what I know? Because I have to respond to everyone. And are these kids really giving me the, the likes because I deserve them? Or is this, you know, the perfunctory likes because we're all supposed to do that, that tension and that worry bills and bills, they hit the release button, right? They send that picture out. They get a temporary reprieve from it. Ah, it's out. And then the tension regarding the the likes comes back. Right. Right. And that's why they turned to Snapchat because Snapchat was none of that. Snapchat was actually the exact opposite. I'm going to show you at your, my silliest, I can put my ugliest faces. I can do all the kind of, right. The goofy stuff and the weirdo filters and, and it's so much less pressure and so much more fun. And that's where Snapchat steps in and takes it. And that becomes an even smaller circle of friends who I can know I can trust that. And, and then comes TikTok into the void. And TikTok right. has a kind of a different model of really I'm providing entertainment content in short little bits. Um, it's less about necessarily me connecting to friends directly, although there's an element of that. It's just this wide open kind of really new niche in there. And so as far as the kind of negatives of social, right, these kids know it. Fortunately, Gen Alpha is going to have the first generation of parents who've actually navigated it themselves. Uh, right? Who will be yeah, able to help guide them a little bit and to say, hey, here's the, here's the beauty of it and here's the traps. And I'm going to try to help you navigate this. And because I know my way around the phone, I can help you and establish some of these parameters and do things along those lines. So I think that will be beneficial to kids, Gen um, um, Gen Z didn't really have that. They had parents who were kind of there, but had not grown up um, uh, in that environment so much. Right. They came to it more as adults than experienced it as kids themselves. But Gen Alpha is going to have uh, parents who who lived it and kind of have know it and, and will be able to help guide them a little bit more. Sure. And I'm sure Gen Alpha will also have new things that have not even been invented yes, of yet. Course. That- of course, their parents hadn't experienced. But, you know, I think about that sometimes, too, you know, being a parent myself is, 
you know, of course, you know, when I went through high school, it was in the late 90s, early 2000s. And, you know, you have the pressure of popularity, you know, what people say about you, what people think about you on top of your your school studies and things of that nature. But I cannot even imagine stacking on top of all of those things, how many followers I have, Susie stopped following me, uh, so-and-so is following yeah. somewhere else. Why didn't they like my last photo? Why did you like her photo? <laughs> right. And all of these other things. And, you know, we see a lot of mental health awareness. Yeah. And part of me wonders, I think part of it's good that the, the stigma has dropped off about talking about it. But the right. other part of me wonders, is this technology driving a lot more mental health concerns than past generations have experienced because they've had different issues? Right. So the data, um, you know, from from scientists who are another level than my data research, right, the, the, those folks tell us that, yes, it is. It has contributed. I mean, if you look at the just the correlation of numbers, right, it's not causal, but you see on the increase and that increase almost lays right over of uh, the advent of of social, right, of, of pervasive social media use. The other part of it, John, is when you walked away from from school, it was pretty much over. Oh, right. Yeah. It ended. Right. right. You could walk in the door at home and be like, I left all that pressure behind. Good point. It doesn't end for these kids because they're just one opening up their screen away from being thrown right back into the middle of it and without right the, the, this is the part that science tells us we we developed um as as humans in a social environment where we read the cues of somebody's facial I- expressions right we could regulate and understand what was being said on that you can't always on a text right you you bring into reading the nuances on it on your own sometimes right that's where emojis have stepped in and tried to help with that and right. that's why they took off because they did that when we couldn't do it. But the other part is if you're a step removed from the pain that you cause by a comment, you're not going to make that comment in person because you feel that right in the moment. And you, you get the jolt of, Oh geez, what did I just say or do? That was really mean. And it makes me uncomfortable. Sure. The screen and social media has made, you know, diminishes that. And so we know that from, from looking at that and, and, you know, that's why one of the reasons why the mental health issues come up with kids and, and social, right? That's the negative part of it. The positive is the inclusiveness and find my group and explore, particularly for some kids who used to be marginalized, right? LGBTQ community who specifically had been in like small towns and, and felt like there's nobody like me and I, and, uh, you know, the pressure of that now can find like-minded folks to, kind of feel like, oh yeah, I am a part of a larger group and that feels good. So yeah, it, it giveth and it taketh away. And it's something that, you know, we have as a society have to, you know, we're learning. When you looked at those those congressional hearings this week, right, that's a group to, to your point earlier about those guys and men and women were generally in their 60s or 70s. They never lived through any of this. They had to be educated about it. And there was a great shot. I think it was on John Oliver or one of the comedians who showed one of the aides behind the lead guy. Just like roll his eyes when when the when the 
um, the senator was talking about Finstead had no idea what he was talking about. And right. just the roll of the eyes of the of the aide who was in his 20s or, or maybe young 30s, who was like, oh, my goodness, please don't go there. You don't know what you're talking about. Right. Um, just, you know, we as a society have to come to grips and those who make the decisions and those who make the rules and the laws really have to make way for those who really know what they're talking about to say, ah, what, we, what can we do here? Can we regulate this in a way that allows for growth and creativity, yeah. but also diminishes some of this, the toxic quality on that? That's something we as a society have to uh, have to decide. I agree. Um, I want to shift just a little bit here. Before we end our episode, I want to get some takes on some of the significant trends that either you've learned recently that either uh, been impactful to you, maybe they've surprised you, or some of your clients have really responded to and have been very valuable to them. What are the things that you're learning right now from the surveys that you're doing in schools? Sure. So one of the things that, you know, uh, my clients are most concerned about is what's coming next, right? Which is true. Right? One, of the, one of the things our trackers do is give a great snapshot of what's happening now with kids. Mm-hmm. But the beauty of that, if you lay those snapshots down, you right, that gives you a, an idea to be able to say, oh, so what's coming next? Particularly if you know, um, as you know, my grounding is in therapeutic education, Right. So I know those kind of social, emotional kind of things that happen at different ages that are really important to them. Why friends become really essential to essence of who they are at the, around the age of 13 for boys, 11 for girls. They're always important, but, you know, all those kind of markers. And so the thing that my clients are wondering about. So what's that next? Where are we? Lead, where's all this change leading to? and that's keeping them awake at night is the metaverse, right? Particularly game folks and content folks are saying, all right, so we're hearing a lot about it. We know that those who are on the cutting edge are, are, have, have, are dipping not only their toes in, but they're jumping in to be prepared for this. How do I get prepared for it? How do I integrate myself? I'm not a tech company. I'm not one of these, I'm a gaming company or I've got content but it's, you know, it's not in this place. And so how do I integrate my content in a way that feels authentic? And it's not just me trying to tack something on, which never works. Kids can smell that out from a million miles, right? You know, uh, Malcolm Gladwell did the, um, you know, the whole idea of that he got from the the Swedish sociologist about the 10,000 hour rule of making you an expert of where you were. I, I talk about the kids in the 10,000 image rule, right? They have seen so many images and so many posts from friends and family that they know are authentic. When a brand comes at them and in a way that's clearly, you know, oh, I'm trying to speak kid, but I'm not, right? And I, and I don't know the lingo and I don't know the format for this platform. It just, they know right away, you know, they don't even have to think about it. They just go, oh gosh, swipe, right? Uh, get out of here, skip, right? Hello, fellow kids. And, yeah. <laughs> and so it's it's how do they uh, navigate that metaverse? Because we know we've seen right. We've seen the Robloxes and we've seen the Fortnites integrate kind of entertainment, integrate um, social meeting aspects, integrate things into this gaming world where, again, if we can give a kid all that they want in diversity in this environment, why would they leave it? Right. Right. There's, you know, huge streams and possibilities there. And and that's where companies are really saying, I need to know what this is. 
I need to know how to authentically engage it and what my role can be, if any, in it. Yeah, I think one thing that's I've seen a lot in my work in the esports space is that young people are not seeing a difference between physical experience and physical goods and digital experience and digital yeah. goods. They value them the same. Sometimes you could argue the digital may be more valuable to them. Um, this is really why the, the rapid rise of NFTs has happened recently. Um, yeah. You know, gamers for years have paid a lot of money to get those unique exclusive items in game. And people just haven't really understood that until recently. Right. And yeah. then as you see with the metaverse, it's now, okay, I can go into this world. It's very aspirational. I can be yes. whatever I want. I can be whoever yeah. I want. And now I can really start to access the physical world in the digital worlds that I love to enjoy. Yeah, and it's so it, it fits right into the conversation we had earlier about them kind of being and becoming and all the things that content and toys can do. This does it in another realm. Right, it right. extends that experience and in fact opens it up to be even more creative and more play like in me playing at trying to understand who I am and experiencing the world as a new me. And um, you know, that's really, really, really powerful. And it's gonna attract kids the more that they can pro provide, companies or platforms can provide experiences that allow those. And and here's the, here's the key I think will be and trust that they can let it go somewhat, right? And allow kids to start to shape it, right? And to create what they want instead of a top-down kind of way, allow, allow it organically to grow and kind of provide kids with the, the tools and the things they need, just like they build their Minecraft worlds, right? Provide the tools that they need to create that, this new environment. The more they can do that, the more uh, enriching it will be for kids. Yeah, that's something that you, you've touched on a few times during this episode is uh, whether you worded it as uh, humility, you know, for CEOs um, or, or other ways is simply, it sounds like not assuming that you know best, um, listening, learning. Yeah. Um, I've talked to some really high profile leaders in the past and one, one of the things that kind of blow my mind, my mind I kind of understand the esports and gaming audiences organically because I come from the skateboarding world. And in skateboarding, it's it's a more extreme version of skepticism yeah. of outside brands than gaming. <laughs> you pay for it. Right. So so I come yeah. to gaming and esports and I say, wait a minute, this this totally makes sense to me. In fact, it's a lot easier. All you need to do is enhance experiences in meaningful ways. You need to, and you can go to the community. You can ask them what they want yes. and then you yes. do it. And so I actually had a, an amazing experience. I was able to, to host a round table with Gary Vaynerchuk, uh, a digital round table uh, during COVID sometime. We, it was a private thing. We interviewed a bunch of different people and I was like, man, I got this guy in the room. He's one of the best in marketing. And I said, Gary, why is it that it seems so simple that you can just ask the audience what they want and then give it to them? And he said, John, 98% of CEOs think that they know best and they're not even willing to ask. And that yeah. just blew my mind. But you've touched on it a number of times during our discussion here. Uh, what What is it about that or other characteristics, You know, some maybe some value we can give the audience to say, do these things and trust me, your business will do better. <laughs> well, and so, so it's, it might be an echo of what I said earlier, particularly because of you are no longer a kid, 
right? Biologically and, and cognitively. Yeah. And you came up through a different prism, right? A cultural prism that, that where you express your childhood in a very different way. And so I, I love the word you use, right? Have the humility to say, okay, if I recognize those two things, then I need to go and understand that prism and talk to kids and hear what they have to say, right? Mm-hmm. We had kids say, we we hope to bridge that gap. You know, um, an executive at um, a major toy company said, the reason why we engage you is you give us the direct line to kids. You keep us grounded in that. So when we're making these decisions, we have to look back and say, so what are the kids saying about this? And so that idea of, you know, humility to, to listen, it'll be amazing because they want you to provide them these fun things. Right. They are, and if you do, they're more than willing to engage you, right? They have autonomy to be able to do that. And so when, when their needs and desires are met by your listening to their needs and desires, kismet. There you go. There yeah. you go. It's amazing. Well, I want to touch on one more thing that is actually a very physical trend. Uh, you know, I have touched on this a little bit. I've seen it uh, pop up in the past, maybe go away, and now it's coming back, and I'm talking about wearables. What yeah. have you seen in the wearable space uh, that we can look out for either – in the very near future or a little further down the road? So this has been something that seemed to me to be a, um, just what we just discussed about uh, needs and desires, meeting uh, somebody providing it with them. Mm -hmm. And I've been waiting for, um, you know, that killer application of a wearable that would, you know, just be seamless into helping kids, you know, find their way in the world and enjoy what they're doing. You know, at the early stages of gaming, we saw those, where you wore a, a wristband that uh, was like an emotion tracker and whatever the motion you got, you could plug in and you would get the, the you know, the bonus on that would kick you up a level, you know, it was a, was a great concept of that. But it was, it was Tim Cook a couple of years ago at one of the, um, you know, one of the Apple events where he talked about the thing he's most excited about is the glasses. Now we saw Google like try that experiment maybe right. they were too far time we saw snapchat try it and maybe they were too ahead of the time but every time apple's come out with a uh, really a revolution besides the newton although that was way too ahead of its time to make it uh to work right but they redefined the space by finding a way right to make to make this thing really enhance uh their experiences and i can see wearable and wearable play especially in, in, in the metaverse, right? Where there's a seamlessness to those two things as one of the next big, um, you know, the next big thing in this place. The other one I'm waiting for is home speaker. Where's it going to be the integration, right? We know that the, the saturation of the home speaker um, has been around for a while, but it, but as when we talk to kids, they say, Oh yeah, my dad listens to music on it. Are we here? There, there hasn't been the ones that are for them necessarily. There's some that are out there that are starting to, um, but that are that are really kind of, oh, um, that home speaker and gaming, right? A combination of a narrative and a this and a that. I'm I'm really excited to see where that, what possibilities may emerge from those. That's interesting as far as audio goes. You know, audio is very important in gaming. Uh, if you look at gaming headsets, you'll see that they're advertising 360 sound. There's games right. where you can hear the footsteps behind you. So you know when your oh, wow. is behind you. Uh, both the PS5 and the new Xbox have come out with 360 sound or immersive sound. I can't remember exactly the marketing right. term that they used. Um, 
but yeah, that's really interesting when you talk about the speaker. The challenge that I think around that is, what if I don't want to hear my kid's music in the same way he doesn't want to hear mine all day? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm also waiting for the um, ubiquitousness of the, uh, the VR headset. You know, it's still, it's still very niche. Yeah. Um, I know they're still working on some of the biofeedback um, issues with that. Um, but I, I think, you know, particularly with events, talk about the metaverse, right? Mm -hmm. Put me, put a kid in an NBA game on a uh, uh, courtside or in a concert where on stage with Ariana Grande or, you know, those kind of things that are just beyond the gaming space. I see real possibities. I see it in the field of education. I drop a kid in into Grand Canyon and, and do rock study for earth science or on the yeah. battlefield at Saratoga and look around and, and have, um, um, augmented reality of, of the battle scene. I, you know, I see all those possibilities. Um, I'm waiting for them to come around. Yeah. I'm a bigger fan in augmented reality, AR than virtual right. reality, VR. I think a couple things, the cost for VR, the headsets, the biggest thing to me, though, and it sounds a little funny, but I think this is maybe the biggest barrier to entry is simply the fact that you can't do anything other than VR when you're doing VR. I'm afraid yeah. to put that headset on, have my friend take a funny picture of me or slap me in the head while I can't see him, you know. But right. if, I, if I've got, whether it's glasses or it's my phone in front of me for augmented reality, you know, we see uh, multitasking as something that continually picks up, right? It, it used to be just one screen. Now marketers have a second right. screen approach. And now I've heard you're, you're talking about third screen or there's right. a third thing that you're doing. And I think virtual reality taking away the ability to multitask is actually um, a great detractor from the adoption to it in addition to some of the cost. Yeah, that's really interesting. I never thought of it that way, but that makes a lot of sense to me. And it, and, and it reinforces why I was really, you know, we saw with Pokemon Go and what a success AR, right? That kind of blew the model up of like, oh, wow, yeah. yeah. And that's why I was wondering about glasses because they are, they are not the VR experience. You, and there's a safety and a concern issue regarding personal space. I need right. awareness right. of what's, right? To be separated from what's around me is, feels foreign, right? It feels, yeah. uh, can, can be disconcerting. But augmented reality, I'm still aware of my, kind of surroundings in that way. And so I can integrate it more into my everyday life. And so I'm really interested to see where, where that goes. Yeah, with the, with the Google Glass, I think one of the big pushbacks was that you could really actually identify people, whether it was their social media profile or some sort of information based on um, analyzing their facial features, something like that. And so people were pushing back on, wait a minute, you're coming into this bar, or this restaurant, or this room with those on. And so right. I'm curious of two things, either not having that capability, I'm sure they could always add it, right, with an app or something like that. But the second is we have a trend of not valuing our privacy. In fact, I remember when I was in college at Sacramento State, go Hornets, um, <laughs> <laughs> I took a technology class and I remember the professor, he was bordering on conspiratorial, you know, and I, I think it was unfortunate that he was a little bit of an odd personality because we really didn't take him very seriously because he was a little weird. But he, if he was trying to drive home one message to our class, that message was, do not get loose, do not get used to losing your privacy. Wow, yeah, that's interesting. And I think 
the more technology emerges, I mean, just, I mean, shoot, I'm about to, you know, update my iPhone overnight tonight. Who knows what I'm agreeing to, right? right. I'm not going to read all that, nor does anybody. Um, right. And then. And, and kids certainly don't. Right. And so, you know, you grow up in that world where you've just clicked. Yeah. I read this whole agreement, even though you haven't even scrolled the page. And um, you don't even know a world where privacy exists. And so, you know, we won't get into all the concerns of that, but that might right. actually be uh, a sentiment that enables a glass, a glasses app or interactive glasses to come in where previously when Google tried to do it, uh, there was pushback. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I know for kids, you know, what you said for we as adults, right? They don't even bother, they don't even think about it, about that issue, right? It's about the convenience, you know, that group of, of, of kids I was talking to in high school in, in New York um, uh, just this week, um, the idea of, you know, if you're getting it for free, you're the product, right? And that seeing their minds kind of go like, oh, right. So, right, uh, that's what, what I'm agreeing to. I'm agreeing to be the product. Sure, I get all these benefits out of it, but what am I giving up in that because I am the product? That's a great analogy. That that really opened my mind right there. I've never thought about it that way. <laughs> well, hey, I could talk to you t- forever, Terrence, but um, we're about at the end of the re- our episode here, but I want to enable the audience uh, to be able to connect with you. Um, I th- Thank you so much for taking the time to share all of these tremendous trends and insights. So how can people continue to learn from you and KidSay? So they can email me at tburke, B-U-R-K-E, at kidsay.com, one word. Um, and they can go to our website and get an idea of, of the kind of the services we provide and, and how we can help them kind of know kids so that they can serve them better. That's awesome. Yeah, I definitely encourage everybody listening and watching this episode please check them out. You're going to learn a ton, whether you're just curious about the latest trends or whether you have a business um, that can uh, really learn uh, from this and continue to serve the next generation. So Terrence, thank you so much for joining me today on the DLC Drop Podcast. Thanks, John. It's always a pleasure talking with you. And today was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the DLC Drop Podcast. This podcast is part of the Esports Futuri Podcast Network and produced by Innovation Media Enterprises. Make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast channel and leave us a review.